Hello and welcome to the Cedar Skier Podcast today. We know that we are being broadcast worldwide, so it's a little bit tricky to decide if I should say good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. So I'll just skip the greeting altogether, and we're going to hop right into it. Today, if you're joining us on our show for the first time, um, let it be known that we discuss all things endurance sports related, but we do have sort of a bent on Nordic skiing a little bit, although I'm probably more of a runner Maybe even a basketball player by trade, but it it makes it interesting. But this is a show for Nordic ski enthusiasts, endurance uh, maniacs, and um, long-distance addicts. Did I I summarize that? That was pretty good for not, not having written that out as an introduction. Anyway, today's title for the show, you'll see we are going to be discussing lactate threshold again. And the reason is, is because upon posting my last show, I had a nice little Facebook stream going, conversations back and forth uh, with Jim Galanis. Jim Jim was a multi-time Olympian for the U.S. Nordic Ski Team and also a big-time coach, APU, I believe... Now, if I say anything, he will. He's he's a fervent listener. So if I say like he coached here and he actually didn't, or he did, and then I forget something, he will be the first to message me uh, and correct me. I'm so glad that Jim listens to my podcast because he brings great, uh, great ideas, great thoughts, often immediate feedback. Um, So he he's definitely a great source to have. And anyway, he was talking on Facebook. I'm going to read the post that he had in response to my show and. After reading his comments, which I thought were really enlightening too, it spurned me to go back and kind of Google and learn the things that I um, had learned in the early goings of my exercise physiology um, courses, which, yes, I mean, I know technically I'm going to get handed, hopefully here, a a piece of paper that says I have a master's in, in sports exercise science kinesiology, but I mean... That should just be evidence to you all out there of the nature of scientific research. If someone who has the moniker Cedar Skier is going to be publishing research, you know, you got you got to think twice about what you're reading. No, I shouldn't say that. I shouldn't I shouldn't cut myself down and cut our research down. It's good. It's fun. Anyway, let's not go down that hole. I mean, that's going to be used against me now. Adam State's going to come after me and go, we're not giving this to you. You made a mockery of us. Um, discussion for another day. So anyway, I had to go back, read a few things, and I actually found a great article on Training Peaks written by um, someone who is based in Colorado by the name of Dr. I'm going to probably mess up his pronunciation. Dr. Inigo San Milan, PhD, Director of Exercise Physiology and Human Performance Lab at the University of Colorado School of Medicine, also Assistant Professor of Family Medicine, Sports Medicine Departments at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. He's considered one of the most experienced applied physiologists in the world. He has worked with many elite athletes and teams in sports, including track and field, running, triathlon, rowing, basketball, and cycling, including a professional cycling teams. You can follow him on Twitter. He's got posts. He's not one of those guys that they say, follow him on Twitter, and his last post is from like 2011 or something. He's got some stuff on there. In fact, side note, we're not talking about this on the show, but I did go to his Twitter um, page, and he has some stuff that probably someone a lot smarter than me needs to uh, dive into regarding covid and long covid the impact on like mitochondria it sounds like something that almost could be connected to this discussion we're having maybe because we're going to talk a little bit about mitochondria but at the very least it's got to have some relevancy to those of us out there who care about our health our athletes maybe had covid whatever um i i know i've said a few times on the show like i've brought up anecdotes of oh this person you know, professional athlete can't train for five months because they got the COVID vaccine or look at this terrible thing that has happened to this guy who got COVID. He's never been the same. Uh, And I brought up a few professional athletes examples, either from the vaccine or from COVID itself. Um, And I'm not sure if this is related, but I woke up this morning and read that a Scottish mountain biker had a like cardiac arrest in bed. Um, and so his wife was trying to like resuscitate him partner, I guess they said partner in the story. Um, so maybe not married, but you know, he like died right there. Terrible, tragic, unbelievably awful. Um, and, and I think your, 
your mind is when you think of the cycling world like you th- you uh, you think of figures like um pa- uh who is the guy that uh <laughs> I said panini hold on pause the show let me google it it was in his amazon documentary they were talking about yeah, it's different cyclists who like they have to wake up in the middle of the night to exercise to kind of thin out their blood because when they're doing the blood transfusions, their blood gets so thick they could die in their sleep. Um, obviously, th- there's no details around this, so don't say that I'm like breaking that news as being that, but it made me think of either the COVID connection or the um, doping connection. But anyway, we're not talking about that today. We're, we're talking about this article written by... Um, by Dr. San Milan. So first, what I want to do, I want to read the conversation from Jim, and then I'm going to read the conclusion of this article, and then I'm going to read the whole article. The reason I'm going to go in that order is because, well, for one, I think that Jim will be thrilled that I found this article because that this guy kind of agrees with him, I think. Um, and two, I think it just goes in a better order. And three, I'm reading the conclusion first because I don't want you to get lost, turn off Shovel Lake Public Radio, and leave us forever. The conclusion will whet your appetite and you'll go, okay, I need to stick around and listen to this whole thing. Okay, so logging on to the interwebs, Facebook. Here we go. <clears throat> Cedar Scare podcast, I posted this. And then, well, first of all, Jim said thanks for the podcast. So I appreciate that. I'm going to scroll down here a little bit to the one that I really want to read. So first I had said, I might be wrong. I know this is kind of off-the-cuff layman sounding. Pause right there. That pretty much describes this entire show for those of you listening. But I think LT work also has the benefit of expanding your aerobic capacity's limits. It makes some sense that by training at LT, you improve your LT, and being able to run faster whilst you're still clearing lactate is going to help in endurance performance in general. And then Jim responds by saying, I would say there's little proof that LT training improves threshold. Where there is experience and research that demonstrates aerobic threshold and VO2 max work does move that needle. It is pretty clear to me that the resynthesis of lactate and the rate of productions are best improved with higher intensity work and work below the aerobic threshold. It is extremely difficult, if not impossible, to identify this supposed point of maximal steady state because so many aspects change as the duration increases. In my experience, it does not exist. I believe coaches mistakenly got on this bandwagon because this threshold is supposedly a good marker of performance, as is the case, as is pace at VO2 max, or the pace at aerobic threshold. Then, because there are so many definitions of what this threshold is, we never know when someone says they are training at threshold what it really is. So, the logic went, if threshold is a marker of performance potential, it must be a good point to train. Not necessarily. From what I have seen, threshold, whatever the definition in elite athletes is, typically at the lower end of the VO2 max level 4 zone, so is it really threshold work or VO2 max work? There's a little bit of error there, so sorry, Jim, if I'm messing up there, but I'm just kind of reading what you have. Uh, these two theoretical points virtually overlap in relatively fit athletes. More to the point, what is lactate threshold? It clearly is not any sort of transition between aerobic or mistakenly called anaerobic work, glycolytic. If one looks at a typical lactate ramp test, the lactate, which is a marker of glycolytic energy production and a balance between production and removal, begins to increase right after aerobic threshold. Only the rate of accumulation changes, which makes sense, and the higher the intensity, the faster lactate accumulates. It is pretty hard to identify, and I don't believe it is a threshold at all, just an increase in rate of glycolytic energy production. People have made a career out of the concept of a lactate threshold, and coaches have made some broad assumptions about it, but the metho- methodology to identify this so-called threshold is all over the map, and if the testing protocol is changed, the identification of the threshold changes. The one-hour point is just a construct based on the imaged availability of energy stored as glycogen. My point is, there is no metabolic threshold, so the point is a theoretical one, not one that has been proven with any certainty. So what does it mean to say 4, mil, uh, four mm, and the, that's the mmol, so the 
the level at which um well we'll get into this in this in the article but where a lactate surges up that's that's a state where um i think onset of blood lactate accumulation obla is for mmol so i think that's what he's referring to there or one mmol above baseline or the dmax protocol just a few ways of many to identify this mythical point of a supposed hour duration but that duration changes with fitness I believe this whole threshold training and theory is dated and not a practical anchor point for training zones or a specific rate of training that does something magically, maybe neuromuscular, but not metabolically. I've seen it over and over in myself and athletes I coach. The pace and intensity one can sustain for long races most often eclipses what anyone would suggest is this threshold. In discussion with the coach and physiologist of, um, I can't say the cyclist names, Tadaj Podic, Podcar? Oh my gosh. Let's Google it. How do you say Tadaj? Okay, we're going to look it up. We're going to look. Stop embarrassing ourselves here. Ajay, look up the pronunciation for him. Okay, I've just watched hours of YouTube footage and how to pronounce his name, and it's Today Pogachar. That's how you say it. Okay, back to Jim's thing. Today Pogachar. In discussion with this, with the coach and physiologist of Tadej Pagachar, he likewise does not believe in threshold, rather that each race duration of effort has a maximal sustainable effort, and it is those loads and demands we need to train for. To me, it is far from clear what threshold training does metabolically. Certainly, there are other factors to consider besides the metabolic domain. <clears throat> My two cents is that threshold is a nebulous term not well defined, and the hour time frame is a construct that is not related to a clear metabolic function as much as energy supply. Would love to hear others weigh in on this whole threshold debate. Um, <clears throat> so in this next article that I'm going to read, you'll you'll probably be able to make a lot of the connections and agreements with what Jim is saying. Um, this article, San Milan, Dr. San Milan, uh, tends to agree with a lot of these things being said, and, and I'll probably try and see if I can add in some two cents. It took a lot of willpower for me to not try to interject. I just wanted to read through the entire post there that Jim was saying. And so, and, and before I add some more ideas, I think it'd be a good idea to just actually read the article. We can make some notes. We'll come back. We'll jot them down. We'll address them. So here we go. This is, I'll link this in the uh, show notes as well, but this is from Training Peaks. And the title is, What is Lactate and Lactate Threshold by Inigo San Milan, Ph.D.? And the subtitle, Lactate Threshold is a widely used term in endurance sports training, yet there is still much confusion surrounding it. This in-depth article explains lactate threshold, including its advantages and limitations. And I would also add to this, it also seems to shed a layer of doubt upon the whole concept of (laughs) lactate threshold. Here we go. Lactate threshold has been a term used for many years across all sports, and it is one of the most used metrics in the world of training by athletes and coaches worldwide. However, do we really know what lactate threshold is? Do we even know what lactate is or its role in performance and metabolism? The fact is that there is still plenty of confusion regarding lactate and what lactate threshold represents. Early studies in lactate. Lactate is a great unknown in human metabolism, despite its key role in its regulation. For many years, it has been thought that lactate was just a waste product as a result of anaerobic exercise. At one point, it was even thought that it crystallized after exercise, which resulted in muscle soreness, which we know now isn't true. But the mystery surrounding lactate isn't due to a lack of scientific effort. Lactate studies date back from the 19th century, when Nobel laureate Louis Pasteur proposed that lactate was produced by lack of oxygen during muscle contraction. Another Nobel laureate, Otto Meyerhoff, proposed that glycogen was a precursor of lactate. He also observed that muscle contraction produced lactate and loss of excitability. In 1923, another Nobel laureate, A.V. Hill, and his colleague Lupton described the term O2-DET and linked it to anaerobic lactate production. However, it wasn't until late in the 20th century that we began to truly understand lactate's role in exercise and metabolism. Dr. George Brooks, a metabolism expert from the University of California at Berkeley, has studied lactate extensively for more than 40 years. Most of what we know about lactate is thanks to his work. Thank you for giving us that background information. I hope you're enjoying this, this lead up. What we know about lactate now. 
We know now that lactate formation can occur under aerobic conditions and that lactate production is the result of glucose utilization by muscle cells under aerobic conditions. From Brooks's work, we also know that lactate is not a waste product. In fact, it is the most important gluconeogenic precursor. And in parentheses, it says new glucose generator in the body. About 30% of all glucose we use during exercise is derived from lactate recycling to glucose. So the body can take lactate and recycle it to glucose. That provides about 30% of all that we use during exercise. Now, those of you in the study who have studied some sports science, you've probably heard of that as, as part of the reasons why supposedly right, improving your ability to recycle is important um, because it's used as an energy source. Continuing. So this is under what we know about lactate now. What do we know about metabolism? He writes, Lactate is also a key regulator of intermediary metabolism, regulating substrate utilization. It decreases and inhibits the breakdown of fat for energy purposes, lipolysis, as well as the rate of glucose utilization by cells, glucolysis. Did I, am I saying that right? Glucolysis? Glucolysis. These are all terms that look nice in an exercise phys book. You think you know how to say them, and you try to do it on Shovel Lake Public Radio Live Air 10,000-watt radio, and it's difficult. Okay, we continue. What do we know about cognitive function? Believe it or not, lactate is even crucial for the brain, being the main fuel that neurons use. Lactate is, a, is, is actually essential for long-term memory and could even be involved in understanding Alzheimer's disease. Some studies show that when lactate uptake by neurons is suppressed, long-term memory is inhibited. Hmm, interesting. Disease. Lactate could also be involved in some chronic metabolic diseases like type 2 diabetes. Blood lactate levels in this population are two to three times higher than in healthy, physically active populations. Cancer cells have a disruptive metabolism utilizing too much glucose aerobically, the Warburg effect, and producing large amounts of lactate, which could contribute to tumor growth and progression. Clearly, lactate is not just a waste product of anaerobic exercise. It is a major fuel and a key regulator of metabolism. It is also a possible epicenter of different chronic diseases. Lactate and performance. Lactate is the byproduct of glucose utilization by muscle cells. The higher the glucose flux into the cell, the higher the lactate production, independently of oxygen availability. During high-intensity exercise, type 2 fast-twitch muscle fibers are fully recruited due to high contractile demands by skeletal muscle to produce energy. That's ATP. Type 2 muscle fibers are highly glycolytic. In other words, they use lots of glucose, which results in the production of high amounts of lactate. This production is a natural byproduct of glucose utilization by skeletal muscle cells. During intense exercise, lactate production is many times higher than that of resting levels. The release of hydrogen ions, H+, associated with lactate can cause an important reduction of contractile muscle pH, resulting in acidosis. This excessive accumulation of hydrogen not only from lactate, but also from ATP breakdown for muscle contraction, ATP hydrolysis, may interfere with muscle contraction at different sites. For example, it may compete with calcium for tropin and C-binding sites, a protein involved in muscle contraction regulation. Hydrogen may also inhibit calcium release and reuptake from sarcoplasmic reticulum. Both processes are involved in muscle contraction. Side note, I, I remember as I was reading this article, I was like, oh gosh, I remember that in exercise phys, the hardest class I ever took six years ago. It was great though. All this can result in a decreased muscle contraction capacity, which can cause an important decrease in peak twitch force, a decrease in maximum muscle shortening velocity, and performance. We know very well that the better the competitive and training level of an athlete, the less blood lactate accumulation that is observed. In Table 1, we can observe blood lactate levels of different cycling categories at different exercise intensities <clears throat> that I've collected over the years during physiological tests. We can clearly see that the higher the competitive level of a cyclist, the lower the blood lactate and the higher the power output and performance. And then in this table, he has, he has a workload and then he, he has the, the blood lactate levels for junior cyclists, top amateurs, average pro tour, and a world-class cyclist. Um, it has their blood lactates at a bunch of different workloads. And I think what sticks out to me, not only is he correct in saying that 
the overall blood lactate accumulation is way higher in worse cyclists. For example, the top amateur at 5.5 watts a kilogram is producing 9.2 millimoles per liter. Um, the world class is just 5.2. But even almost more shocking is if you look at 4.5 watts a kilogram, top amateurs, 3.5. Um, average pro tour, 3.2. World class, 1.8. If it's below 2, like... Again, those are that's like a, a level that and I know this is like kind of nebulous again, going back to the discussion, but you could do just forever. So the world class cyclist, I think what I what I saw here a little more is if you plotted out their graph, you would see a little bit more of a substantial spike um, in in their uh, performance. If you a substantial sp- uh, spike in the blood lactate accumulation, although um, <clears throat> perhaps I'm just you know, seeing this all wrong is I'm trying to like, look at the numbers here and picture what would that graph look like? And I mean, at three Watts a kilogram, the world class is at 0.8, 3.5, still 0.8, 4.96, 4.5, 1.8, you know, so they're just almost nothing through that first 4.5. And then when they go to five Watts a kilogram, the world class cyclist goes up to 3.1 at 5.5, it's 5.2. And then at six, it jumps up to 8.9, which is kind of that top end that the others reached at 5.5, or the junior cyclists reached at just five watts a kilogram effort. Anyway, um, let's continue. I won't, I won't try to figure out too much more there. The lower blood lactate levels observed in the top athletes is due to an enhanced lactate clearance capacity. Lactate can be exported to the blood for clearance and energy purposes in pretty much every organ in the body. However, this process takes time, while lactate is produced continuously during exercise. Well-trained athletes are very efficient and export less lactate to the blood as they clear it in higher amounts right in the lactate-producing muscle, which takes seconds or milliseconds. This is very advantageous as it allows contractile muscles a faster hydrogen removal, as well as a faster lactate recycling for extra energy. Okay, so one thing just kind of going off here is I think what 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 I at least according to Dr. Sam Milan is the idea that um, a higher level athlete is going to be able to um, what was the line here? Oh, the clearing capacity. Like he he makes the argument that the reason they can do this. Uh, they can perform at a higher energy output level with less lactate is because they have an enhanced lactate clearing capacity. You might be like, well, no, duh, but no, duh, Sherlock, right, Ajay? Yeah, I get it. Um, but I think even like, I, I do like to approach things when it comes to training physiology, at least trying to understand mechanisms. So I, I don't, in other words, if a coach comes up to me and says, lactate threshold training is really important, like that's not really good enough for me. If I ask why and they can ex- and they explain it to me by saying, well, here's a bunch of studies of athletes that did lactate threshold training and they improved performance. That also is not to me a mechanism, evidence of mechanisms taking place here. I want to know that what's going on within the body and then I'll try and draw conclusions as far as that goes. And so I think that's what what he's trying to suggest or what I'm trying to suggest here is that there's something to be said about lactate clearance. And now he's going to get into like what is actually going on that is clearing lactate cells. It has to do with mitochondria. It has to do with the difference between slow twitch muscles and the type of mitochondria that they are producing versus fast twitch muscles and the type of mitochondria they produce. And as you start to insert all of these other elements, I think it, at least for me, kind of starts to become clear as to potentially why the research, the studies taking athletes and having them run through things could potentially be misleading. Because if you take a study with a bunch of distance runners who are highly developed slow twitch muscles or even just a higher percentage of slow twitch muscles, they're going to have a certain type of mitochondria that another athlete in a different sport might not have. Say Nordic skiing, they might have a little bit more equal um, proportion of fast twitch and slow slow twitch muscles. And therefore their lactate clearance ability is different because they have different mitochondria shuttling things around. Um, I hope that makes sense. But basically, the more I read this article, I was like, huh, I bet that's why some 
of these studies might lead us into the wrong direction, lead us to the wrong conclusions, and all of a sudden we end up with things like this arbitrary one-hour um you know, what you can do for in an hour, this arbitrary for uh, MMOL, right? That, those, those data points. Okay, let's continue though. It says, well-trained athletes are very efficient and export less lactate to the blood as they clear it in higher amounts right in the lactate-producing muscle, which takes seconds or milliseconds. Okay, I know I read that, but we're, we're coming back up. <laughs> This is very advantageous as it allows contractile muscles a faster hydrogen removal as well as a faster lactate recycling for extra energy. Okay, continuing. During exercise, lactate is mainly produced in fast twitch muscle fibers, which use lots of glucose for energy. It is cleared mainly by slow twitch muscle fibers. This is a complex process involving different lactate-specific transporters and enzymes. Fast-twitch fibers have a high content of one transporter called MCT4, which transports lactate away from these fibers. Slow-twitch fibers possess a transporter called MCT1, which takes lactate inside these fibers. That lactate is then converted to a pyruvate, uh, to pyruvate in the mitochondria by an enzyme called MLDH to then finally synthesize ATP. Endurance training has the purpose of improving lactate clearing capacity by increasing the number of mitochondria to clear lactate, mainly in slow-twitch muscle fibers, <clears throat> as well as by increasing the number of MCT1 and MLDH. Both high-intensity and endurance training increases the number of MCT4 to increase lactate transport away from fast-twitch fibers. Okay, so this is this paragraph is key. In fact, these two paragraphs are super key, especially if you were paying close attention to what Jim was saying as well. Because remember, he said, I found that um, I we can move the needle by doing aerobic stuff and VO2 max stuff. So either either end of the spectrum, if we're like going really fast or we're giving like recovery, like long, slow aerobic stuff. Um, and what is being said here seems to support that. Why? Well, it goes back to how lactate is cleared. Notice it said that that mostly takes place in slow-twitch muscle fibers with MCT1. MCT1 is the transporter that takes lactate inside the, inside the fibers. Um, Fast-twitch fibers also have a high content, though, of MCT4, which trans, transports lactate away from their fibers. So fast-twitch fibers are the, high, they, they're the ones that produce lactate, and MCT4 is transporting it away. Slow twitch fibers produce MCT1, which takes these and then convert it to pyruvate, um, which eventually turns into energy. So you want to have MCT1. You want to have, you, you really want MCT1. You need a lot of those. You also need MLDH because that's what's synthesizing it into ATP. And what the statement is, is we can improve MCT1 and MLDH, which you need to transport lactate away and clear it and recycle it. You can do that by aerobic exercise and VO2 max work. And so <clears throat> now we don't, this, this article doesn't explain the mechanism. It just says that's, that's a, tr it just basically makes a truth claim and says both high intensity and endurance training increases the number of MCT4 to increase lactate transport away from fast twitch muscle fibers. So that's a truth claim. It's a bit, pretty big truth claim. I'm, I'm sort of curious as a, you know, not totally expert in this field, like, is that debated? Do we understand the mechanism there? Why is it that aerobic work increases that? Is it actually the, the nature of the aerobic work? Is it something else? Um, and, and I'm finding kind of like, hey, I'll die on that hill anyway. It sounds to me like aerobic stuff's good to do and VO2 max stuff is good to do. If Dr. Sam Milan says it, let's go with it. I, I'm kind of okay with that approach, but I just want to point out that's a truth statement there. That's a truth claim. Whereas this other stuff, he's explaining what's going on. Um. So that was big. And, and hopefully, Jim, if you're out there still listening, paying attention, you're like, ah, see, I told you so. <laughs> um, as shown uh, in table, oh, sorry, before I keep going, also this fact, keep in mind what I'd said previously before I was reading that paragraph about the different body types and how they're going to have different proportions of fast twitch and slow twitch muscle fibers. Okay, so 
a very aerobic, like a trail runner, they're, they're not going to have as much fast twitch muscle fibers anyway. And then the more they trail run and do 100-mile runs and train for ultra-endurance stuff, the more they're actually converting whatever fast twitch they had to slow twitch muscle fibers. And so my curiosity is, is it possible that if you wanted to do a test about lactate threshold training in general, and you took a bunch of endurance runners who are have trained 100-mile weeks, even if it's for the 5K and the 10K. Let's take those athletes, like the ones I saw when I was doing my VO2 max test at Adam State five or six years ago. Um, you take all these runners, you have them run through the test, and we're plotting out their lactate values. And we do seem to see this like clear spike. Okay, you know, we were taught to plot. This is where the lactate threshold is. And then we found a bunch of other values and could assess like training zones based off of that. It seemed very obvious to me, but I'm wondering if it's because those athletes we tested, generally speaking, were had a lot of slow twitch muscle fibers. And so clearing of lactate is generally going to be very, very efficient until you hit this threshold where all of a sudden it just spikes. You know, so what I'm, what I'm saying is, is the higher percentage of sl- slow twitch muscle fibers you have, is that spike going to be very obvious? And thus we go, oh, look, there's a threshold where in reality, that threshold doesn't really actually exist. It's kind of just a thing that you sort of see in, in these ultra, ultra endurance athletes. But take like a cyclist and Jim in face, the Facebook post, he posted this picture like, OK, try to try to plot where the threshold is here. And it, it's a good point. The graph is a little bit like, huh be a little harder to do but i'm wondering if you if you think about a cyclist yes they're doing long distance endurance things but they're also their sport is a heck of a lot different than like um sustained marathon running at uh you know 455 per mile pace where athletes are training for that in a cycling event you i guess i'll just skip ahead to the good part cyclists it seems to me have a little bit more fast twitch muscle fibers than say a distance runner and certainly a nordic skier probably similar as well not all nordic skiers but some just because of the nature of the sport it's my belief that a nordic skier even the elite ones are kind of the equivalent of a world-class 800 meter runner and i say that because if you took a really good 800 meter runner you could definitely have them run a 10k or run a long distance race and they'd be okay they'd survive and they could they could probably sprint at the end of it even they would not be good at going all out for a full half marathon or for something like that um but they're the type of athlete that's very dynamic very fast very explosive they have fast twitch muscle fibers and thus they're going to be producing lactate um in higher volumes they have more fast twitch muscle fibers to do that and less of a clearance. So, so, so are those athletes' graphs going to be a little more gradual where you're like, oh dear, I don't know exactly where this lactate threshold really is compared to an elite Division two or Division one cross-country runner, per se. Anyway, that, that was the thought I had when I was reading through that and kind of synthesizing these two ideas. But I'll keep going here. We'll finish this article. He continues. He says, um, so, uh, la, 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 la. oh yeah, so, the, so zone two endurance training increases um, MCT4. And MCT1. Okay. As shown in Table 1, lactate is probably the parameter that discriminates the most between different levels of athletic performance. Lactate analysis can give us a lot of information on muscle metabolism during exercise, where we can indirectly assess mitochondria density, oxidative and substrate utilization status, or muscle fiber recruitment patterns. Lactate testing is probably the best way to assess muscle metabolic stress and performance, especially in endurance athletes. It is also probably the best method that we have to predict performance and endurance events, as well as an excellent parameter to prescribe individual exercise training zones for athletes. So the first part of that sentence, I think Jim would probably agree with. And the second part, I don't think he would. (laughs) I'll read it again. It's also probably the best method we have to predict performance and endurance events. And Jim wrote wrote something along the lines of, hey, we've got VO2. In fact, I, I have it pulled up here in my notes. What did Jim say here? Hold on. Um... Jim said, uh, it's, uh, I believe coaches mistakenly got on this bandwagon because this threshold is supposedly a good marker of performance as is the pace at VO2 max or the pace at, at aerobic threshold. So I guess he didn't say point blank, like, Hey, I also think that, but 
um, I would be someone who would say if you lined up a a bunch of a bunch of athletes, <laughs> you're like trying to pick who's going to be the most naturally talented person, you know, like backyard football draft style, and you could you could have them go through all their markers or you got all their data. I would definitely be looking at what's their pace at those, just because my hunch is logically that if this is what we know about lactate clearing, um, then someone who has that higher quote lactate threshold as opposed to in those tests. They're they're just gonna be better, um. So yeah, it seems logical to me that that your pace at VO two max or lactate threshold, at the very minimum, it's a possible correlation to good performance. But I I do agree with Jim. Is this does this mean uh, that, that that's a good pace to train at? You know, um. I think the only logic there is perhaps specificity. Like if spe- if sports if specificity in training is a principle we believe in, perhaps if you've identified someone's supposed lactate threshold, the idea of training at that pace specifically, your body should get better at running at that pace and more efficient at it. Um, and so then it's going to eventually like that's not going to be the point at which you would um, fail to clear lactate during exercise. Now, what I just said there, if you want to go back and rewind it, go for it. But what I just said there, I think, almost gets to the to the conclusion of both this article and Jim's thought, which is to say that, and and today Pagachar Pagachar's coach's point, which is, I don't think we really have these this one hour set in stone thing. I think it has to do more with efforts at different times, you know. So like. If we, doing a 20 minute test, doing a 40 minute test, something in a, a race that's an hour and 10 minutes, like a fit athlete is going to be able to find their maximum speed for all of those different things. And, and, and in doing so, you're going to find a wide range of lactate responses. Okay. So that's, that's what I want to add there. Let's see. Oh, oh, the second part though, I don't think he would agree because it does say that uh, it's probably an excellent parameter to prescribe individual training zones. And Jim's can point blank, like, I don't think we should be um, basing our training off of this. <laughs> um, yeah, so the bottom there, it says, in fact, Jim's word specifically, he says, I believe this whole threshold training in theory is dated and not a practical anchor point for training zones. Yeah, and and originally, I think I would have disagreed. I would have been like, I kind of fall where this San Milan guy says, oh, sorry, man, like, this is the anchor point for training. This is what we've always done. But I'm kind of starting to see Jim's point, honestly, of like, how can we base training zones off of this nebulous marker that's very hard to define and almost perhaps even harder to locate? So if it's that nebulous, could it really be an anchor for the training zones? I think I might have to fall a little bit more honestly on Jim's side there. And I also agree that, hey, that being said, threshold quote threshold work might still be beneficial and i put it in quotes because to me i would almost have to say that if there's such a thing as quote threshold work it's somewhere right below slightly slower than true vo2 max work and jim kind of said it too he's like he he didn't say LT is almost, he said in high level athletes, their their LT is like really close to their VO2 max. So what are we actually doing here? Is it VO2 max work or is it it lactate threshold work? To me, I would go, no, no, there's a distinct difference. You take a world-class athlete or a a high level athlete, even a high level citizens athlete. um, And you're like, all right, we've got six by five minute intervals on the track here. And I want you to run them as fast as you can while keeping them relatively even. That's going to be like a VO2 max workout or 10, 400 repeats at mile pace. You know, that's like a true VO2 max workout. That's a pretty distinct difference than saying like three by 12 minutes at hard, you know, like a good well-trained athlete is going to know three by 12 minutes. Like that's got to be just a little bit slower than my 10 K pace probably, you know? And, and when you start going a little bit slower than 10 K running pace, you're starting to wander into like, it's not exactly VO2 max. Like it's, it's way more aerobic than anaerobic. And, and, um, you know, a really fit person is probably not going to be like, cramping up doing <laughs> with lactate production you know whereas one of my 
one of my coach's favorite workouts for this exact thing, lactate clearing, and now it kind of makes sense, is he would have his 800-meter runners do four by 200 meters as fast as you possibly could. So essentially, he's asking them to do like an 800 split into 200s with just 30 seconds of rest. And then you would have like a nine-minute jog slash break, and you would repeat that again. And then by the end of the year, they could actually repeat that a third time. He had incredible success with average talent. You know, we're talking like two flat, 202 class B North Dakota country folk going down to like 151 in the 800. Um, and, and I kind of see why, but that makes some sense. Okay. But alas, I think Sam Milan does kind of venture into this area where he, he is skeptical still. So let's keep going. It says, he, he does say something a little more blasphemous. Sorry, Jim, if you're listening. <laughs> Among those training zones, lactate threshold is that special training zone. We all want to train and improve. The only way to directly measure lactate threshold is by doing lactate testing. Yeah, which, by the way, at the end of this, that's the one thing that would, to me, would go, screw this. We're never doing lactate threshold training specifically because who who wants to be out there like pricking people's fingers and i mean in the middle of like your intervals right roller skis like coach comes by you always see it as the the mark in an athlete like oh that athlete is really serious really good really fit because you know how i know they're doing lactate testing in their workout Look at their coaches coming out and like pricking them and putting these little things into a screen and, and they're getting lactate readings. It's just crazy, you know? And um, to me, it's like uh, the, the hassle from that, if at the end of the day, what is being suggested, that, lac- that lactate is kind of a nebulous thing we don't even really define, just imagine the hours of logistical hassle that have been that have been undergone by coaches through the decades who have been convinced that like they have to be doing this um my my reaction though even so is like even if let's just say lactate threshold training is absolutely 100 this is what you should be doing and, and this is exactly how we define it we were right along those of you coaches who are lactate testing good for you wouldn't you just assume that an athlete who is at the ability level where they would maybe warrant lactate testing mid-workout in like july couldn't you just kind of say like hey remember that time we did lactate threshold testing and we did the you know six by eight minute interval stuff just go at that pace again okay get that effort go at that effort again you'll probably be running faster because we're in better shape now because it was like two weeks ago you know like could you just say that or no we gotta haul all the like equipment and that coach's one job is to like prick people and take lactates um i mean i don't know now if you're someone who is like really wants to track fitness gains I guess I could kind of see why you would do a lactate test every once in a while, but it would have to be a really controlled setting, you know? So if you have a roller ski treadmill and you can really replicate, duplicate everything just like perfectly, then it would make some sense. But again, like out in the field doing a test like that seems a little bit strange. So I don't know. Maybe coaches just want to have data they can sift through. All right, we continue. What is lactate threshold? Lack, uh, this is exciting here. This is juicy stuff. Lactate threshold is probably the most used training term by coaches and athletes worldwide. However, there is wide controversy as of what lactate threshold really means, as well as to what is the exercise intensity that elicits, elicits it. <laughs> lactate threshold is commonly known as the exer- exercise intensity or blood lactate concentration at the one, we can only sustain a high-intensity effort for a specific period of time. Oh, I okay. So I, th- I don't know if this this there might, there is some typos here. So I'm going to try and like correct them mid mid reading it here. What he was trying to say is lactate threshold is commonly known as the exercise intensity or blood lactate concentration that we can that we have while sustaining a high-intensity effort for a specific period of time. However, this is where the controversy is. What is that period of time? What is that blood lactate concentration at? How long can we sustain that given exercise intensity before we crack down? Many authors and coaches have been trying to answer these questions for a very long time. The first description of a blood lactate threshold dates back from 1930, and it was named by W. Harding Owls, the Owls Point. In 1964, 
Wasserman and McIlroy proposed the term anaerobic threshold based on the belief that lactate accumulation was due to a lack of muscle oxygen availability, and therefore anaerobic muscle metabolism was necessary for the continuation of muscle contraction. Mader and co-workers determined in 1976 that anaerobic threshold was reached at the blood lactate concentration of 4 millimoles per liter. Okay, so there's that number there. The anaerobic threshold, the 419, that's from 1976. In 1981, it was, that was named by Shodin and Jacobs, the onset of blood lactate accumulation, or OBLA, occurring at the blood lactate concentration of 4 uh, millimoles per liter. Farrell and co-workers, and this is where it kind of gets crazy here, co-workers proposed in 1979 the term onset of plasma lactate accumulation, or OPLA, which was the exercise, exercise intensity that elicited a blood lactate concentration of one milli, uh, millimole per liter. So there's our one, there's our four, remember back Jim's conversation, he mentioned those um, are kind of, quote, arbitrary numbers. Okay. So one millimole greater than baseline or four millimoles greater than baseline. But another term proposed in 1981 by LaFontaine and coworkers was the maximal steady state, which in theory happens at a blood lactate concentration of 2.2 millimoles per liter. In 1983, Coyle and coworkers proposed the term lactate threshold, which was a nonlinear increase in blood lactate of at least one millimoles per liter. Another term, maximal steady state workload, MSSW, was proposed by Borch and coworkers in 1993 and was established at the fixed, um, fixed lactate of 3 millimoles per liter. Veronique Bellat in 2003 proposed the term maximal lactate steady state, MLSS, as the exercise intensity at which blood lactate can be sustainable. Confusing, isn't it? <clears throat> there are multiple theories and hypotheses among the scientific community, and not a common consensus of what lactate threshold is. So first of all, that statement right there is kind of key. Because for Jim even to present this idea of like, hey guys, maybe this is a conversation we need to have again. Like, I think there's a lot of coaches out there and graduate students who would have just like assumed that lactate threshold is gospel. And here's a guy saying right flat out like, no, no, no. The scientific community, is there's not a consensus here. Continuing. The bottom line to understand what lactate threshold means is that as muscles get more metabolically stressed, there is a higher lactate accumulation and hydrogen um, ion, okay? Mitochondria in contractile muscles become more stressed to clear lactate in a timely manner, and at some point, if the exercise intensity continues, contractile muscle mitochondria become saturated and therefore cannot keep up with the lactate clearance, then exporting it to the blood. And this is when we see a rise in blood lactate levels, which correspond to the metabolic event when it is not possible to maintain that given exercise intensity. So again, there's the logic, by the way, of the lactate threshold um, supporters. That crowd is going, look, just think about it. If the mitochondria is clearing lactate effectively and you're continuing to exercise at a given workload you're good. And then when, there's a tipping point where they become saturated. The extra, the demand is too high and um, they cannot clear lactate in a timely enough manner. And there, and so there's just too much lactate in it. And you're going to have that reading where it, it just jolts. Um, but, and, and so that, that's where they go. Yeah, look, you can see this jolt. That's the lactate threshold. But I think there's this counterpoint now that Jim's kind of bringing up where he's going, yeah, but look, there's some athletes like take a Tadai Padadaka. Take him. He can go at like a really high level of lactate for a long time. And Jim kind of saying like, at what point would they stop? How do we know? Like, would they clap? <laughs> do they just kind of like shut down at some point? Like they don't, there's nothing ingrained here where it goes, um, yeah, it's producing so much lactate that you just can't sustain performance. It doesn't seem like that's actually clearly defined. It's like event specific and time specific, you know, like, and, and I think the, the coach is now realizing like, depending on the distance, there's like a different quote threshold that can be sustained for a certain amount of time. Uh, and that's maybe more the discovery point for people is like, okay, what should be the lactate level if I'm requesting you know, intervals that are only lasting five minutes versus one that's an hour versus one that's 30 minutes versus one that's three hours because an elite athlete's going to all look kind of different depending on the distance.
Anyway. Um, oh, final. In my opinion, it is important to look at the lactate threshold concept from a different angle. In the first place, unfortunately, many athletes and coaches don't perform lactate testing, so they can never find out about their lactate metabolism despite still talking about lactate threshold training. Furthermore, we tend to describe lactate threshold efforts to those high ex um, we tend to describe lactate threshold efforts to those high exercise intensities we can sustain for relatively short periods of time without blowing up, and this is where there's a lot of confusion. Where do we define that exercise intensity and period of time at which we can sustain a high effort? Is it 5, 10, 30, 300 minutes? Is it 3, 4, or 6 uh, millimoliters of blood lactate concentration? Climbing a 5-kilometer Cat 1 climb during 25 minutes without getting dropped requires a specific, quote, lactate threshold per maximal, maximal steady state, which could represent a blood lactate concentration of 4 to 6 and a specific individual power output, or fractional threshold power. This intensity, however, is different than climbing a 10k cat 2 climb without getting dropped, which may take 40 minutes, and therefore a different threshold slash maximal steady state, uh, which could represent a blood lactate concentration of say 3 to 5, and a different FT FTP, which at the same time is different than that threshold or maximal steady state of a 40 kilometer time trial. Running a marathon at goal pace requires a very important effort at maintaining a maximal steady state, which is actually a truly lactate threshold for the entire marathon, which elicits a blood lactate concentration of 2 to 2.5. This threshold is different and elicits a higher blood lactate concentration for a half marathon, a 10K, or a 5K. It seems that each endurance sport has different lactate thresholds, which are key in order to perform successfully. That's pretty much exactly the point that I was just trying to make there. Evolving lactate threshold. All this seems too confusing, and for this reason, I believe that it's time to evolve the lactate threshold concept in a more pragmatic manner. Oh, here we go, right? This is the hallelujah. So we're confused. We got we to gotta relook at this. We may need to consider different terminologies, like, for example, a concept of a maximal metabolic stress that can be sustained for a given amount of time. And he has in parentheses, maximal metabolic steady state, or MMSS. Depending on the sport and event, there would be different MMSSs, which would represent the maximal metabolic stress that we can sustain for a specific distance and discipline, like a marathon, a 1500, a 10K run, a 40K time trial, a 5K cat one climb. Then we can translate this MMSS to a blood lactate concentration to get our lactate threshold or to other different parameters like heart rate, power output, or running pace. This is not just a useful way to predict performance, but also to track progress. In a way, this is already being done by many coaches and athletes who use FTP or goal pace all the time. So there you go. That's maybe the way you maybe would use it if you did take the approach of, okay, it seems like there's all these different thresholds at different paces. Let's take that. Let's find, let's identify the numbers for each individual athlete um, at that given, what pace that shows up at. And then we can use it to track improvement. I kind of like that. Still kind of a hassle, but at least you're like finding something perhaps that is usable. Okay, continuing. We're almost done here. Training misconception around lactate threshold. A typical training mistake that many athletes and coaches do is training at, quote, lactate threshold in order to improve lactate clearance capacity. This is not correct, as we know that during exercise, lactate is mainly produced by glycolytic fibers, fast twitch, which are the ones recruited at lactate threshold. However, lactate is mainly cleared by adjacent slow twitch fibers that have a very high mitochondrial capacity and a much higher amount of MLDH enzymes, enzymes and MCT1 transporters. Therefore, to improve lactate clearing capacity, and although totally counterintuitive, it is key to train those slow twitch muscle fibers to stimulate mitochondrial growth and function as well as increase MCT1 and MLDH. Training at lactate threshold is essential to improve glycolytic fibers and their machinery, our turbo, and to upregulate the number and function of glycolytic enzymes, as well as to increase the number of MCT4 transporters necessary to transport lactate away from fast twitch fibers to then be cleared by slow twitch fibers. Spending too much time at lactate threshold is very tasking as well, as it is a high effort and can lead to overtraining, which is something we constantly observe in our lab. 
we constantly see in our lab athletes and coaches that have this misconception and make this mistake and uh, leading to overtraining and not improving lactate clearing capacity. With specific protocols, we measure lactate, fat, and carbohydrate metabolism during all exercise intensities to study the whole metabolic and physiological response to exercise, which allows us to predict performance as well as to define individual training zones quite clearly, in particularly zone two, which with the experience over the past 18 years, it is shown to be the training zone eliciting the best results to improve lactate clearance capacity. So many athletes come to our lab without knowing these concepts and train too much at lactate threshold. And by identifying their specific training zones, we turn their training programs completely upside and we constantly see very important improvements in their lactate clearance capacity and performance. While at the same time, we significantly decrease the cases of overtraining. So, and then finally, to conclude, lactate threshold remains as the most used training term worldwide, and yet there is no consensus of what exactly it represents. There is too much confusion and not just regarding what lactate threshold is, but also what lactate per se is and what its role and important in exercise and metabolism is. I believe simply that after several decades of discussion and controversy, it is time for the lactate threshold concept to evolve and be named and defined differently so athletes and coaches can use it in a more meaningful and understandable manner in order to describe that, quote, magic exercise intensity that can only be sustained for a specific amount of time which is crucial for performance and success. So one thing I wanted to just clarify here is and you're reading that zone two, if you're listening to our last podcast, we were kind of, kind of talking about a three zone model zone, but this zone two is not the same zone two in that three zone model. Um, this is a zone two in a six or seven zone model. And so there, the seven zone model, you can find uh, Dr. Andrew Coggin, I believe is the one who set some of those zones. So zone two in this is more of the, it's an endurance one. So you're looking at 69 to 83% of average heart rate. Um, and this is a kind of your pace, long, slow distance pace training. Okay. So a couple things that I do want to say, I'm not sure I'm in like a hundred percent agreement with this, I guess. Um, I can follow the logic here when he was talking about the training misconceptions. Um, yeah, and he says, you know, it opens by saying many athletes and coaches do this training at lactate threshold to improve their lactate clearance capacity. And he says, Hey, this isn't going to work because we know that, um, you know, the, the lactate, uh, clearance, you know, your MCT one transporters, the MLDH, that's in your slow twitch fibers. So you got to, you know, train your slow twitch fibers and you do that by doing long, slow stuff. Um, okay. But don't, well, first of all, he, he says that on the one hand, it seems counterintuitive, but you have to train that. But then he, in his next line, he says, training at lactate threshold is essential to improve glycolytic fibers and their machinery and to upregulate the number and function of those enzymes, as well as to increase the number of MCT4 transporters, which are necessary to transport lactate away from fast twitch fibers to then be cleared by slow twitch fibers. So seems to me like what he's saying is you do need to train those fast twitch muscle fibers um, in lactate threshold training because that's how you're going to improve your M your increase your MCT4 transporters. I mean, to me, what I'm seeing is, okay, in order to clear lactate better, we need to have MCT4. That's found in your fast twitch stuff. You need to have MCT1, which is in your slow twitch. Uh, so you need both. I mean, I guess you're, what, what, you, what you may make the argument is you need the MCT1 more, but I mean, it, is that that's kind of like the Lidyard, the Lidyard idea of like, if you run... 100 miles a week at 845 per mile pace somehow magically you're going to be able to have the lactate clearing ability to run like a 148 800 meter i mean maybe there's a chance that from a metabolic perspective that's totally true you know like that kid who just runs long slow distance all the time he has the ability to clear lactate that should theoretically enable him to run a very, very fast 800 meter race. But we know that performance is dictated upon so many other things, thinking like biomechanics, efficiency, just even muscle strength power, like your tendons ability to rebound that can't come from just plodding along at a very slow pace. So 
given that, you're going to have to do stuff that's running a lot faster than that. And not only that, like towing into the lactate, quote, lactate threshold pace, which is slightly slower than VO2 max, if for no other reason to practice whatever race pace that is. So if if your response to my last thing is thinking, well, yeah, so the, the, the magic formula is do VO2 max training and do really slow stuff. What I would say is, I mean, are you just assuming that you're going to be able to do that race pace that is slightly slower than VO2 max? Well, I'm not sure you are. Like if the only workouts I ever did were four to six minute intervals at VO2 max really, really hard and eight minute per mile long slow runs. Um, am I going to be able to find that magic pace for like a half marathon or a marathon and do that really well? I don't, I don't think so. Like, and I think I'm not sure why that is, but I feel like that's a truth. (laughs) Uh, on the flip side, I will say, I think there are some runners at least runners who are naturally gifted from a form and biomechanics and flexibility and Achilles tendon length standpoint, who can actually get away with running a lot of long, slow miles and being very, very fast. And this could be explained perhaps by this idea that, look, when they run long, slow stuff, they're actually increasing their mitochondria. They're going to help clear lactate. They really don't even have to do that much like lactate threshold stuff they're just gonna be able to clear it because they have all the pieces in place and but but this brings me to me like a, a an overarching thought that i think we should consider in this what i feel like uh san milan is suggesting is as long as you have all of the pieces in place and all the people there it's gonna work what i mean by that is the people in place, the characters, are MC1, MCT1, MCT4, and MLDH. It seems like what Sam Milan is saying is, as long as we've got all those guys in large quantities and they're all grouped up here, they're like they're here ready to do their job, then um, you'll be good at lactate clearing. But what I wonder is, do we actually need to train all those people to do their roles? <laughs> like, in other words, picture, you know uh like a a a group of 30 workers you know they're they've showed up at the site of the mine to dig a hole uh you've got 30 workers here and you've got some that are really strong and they're going to be good at digging the hole and some that are really good at taking the dirt away okay so you hopefully you can see the picture those are like your mct1s or uh mct4s are digging the hole mct1s are bringing it away yeah, so you've got 30 of them at the mine, but if none of them have ever done their job, are they? how good are they going to be at digging it? Versus someone who's got 20 workers, but he trains them through the act of digging and hauling away all the time, which the exercise connection there would be someone who is never tapping into the actual state of being that re- would require lactate clearance in its truest form, which it kind of comes about in, quote, a lactate threshold workout, they're not going to have those pieces like, I don't know, functioning and harmony. And I don't know if I'm getting too artsy about it, but yeah, I just kind of feel like it doesn't make sense to me that you could run slow, gain the the MCT1, and that's going to help you clear lactate running really fast. It's kind of like the whole Emil Zadepec idea of he once said, I already know how to run slow. I have to learn how to run fast. And that's a very unscientific claim that I think is incredibly pragmatic in, in a sense because possibly it's more scientific than we think. You know, if if the body adapts by becoming better at what you teach it to do, then if you never show it the stimulus of running in a place where you're going to have to lactate clear or exercising at a level where you're going to be lactate clearing stuff, like you're just never going to be able to do that well, regardless of if you have a gazillion high mitochondria count, you know? And that's nothing to say of 
the biomechanic element, the structural element, the flexibility element, just like the mental element of being used to running fast. That would be the biggest thing, at least for me as an athlete, you know, like if, oh yeah, I've done hundreds of miles, 12 weeks in a row, high volume, a lot of low, long, slow distance. Now I'm going to be asked to run a mile all out or an 800 all out. I'd be scared to death because the second you start running at your mile pace, it's going to feel so much faster than it used to. And anyone who has trained really fast, they know what it feels like to be in like a 5k and the 5k race pace feels slow because they've trained so often at paces faster than that. There is absolutely something to be said about it. I know it's the most old school concept, but I think there's something about that where like when you train the body to run really fast, um, and then ask it to run slower, it feels easier. You know, it's like, (laughs) I don't know. Um, that, that was one thing I had. I don't, I know we kind of already gone up, filled up our time here. I did take some notes here on comments. I want to go back to from Jim's uh, original post. And now I'm thinking, I, I know I addressed a few of them already. Um, oh, let's see where, where did we, we lost our, my note page. Where did it go? We are quickly trying to pull it up here. Live radio. This is what you pay the big bucks for. I definitely just have too many screens. You know what I mean? Like I need like, I need like a monster screen that I can have all, all my tabs open at once and see them all. Or, I don't know. Um, okay. So just going through here. Not an anchor part. I did talk about that. Um, yeah, you know, I think I linked a lot of these thoughts together. You know, Jim said, um, quote, he likewise does not believe in threshold. This is referring to today, pod, pod, pods coach. Jim said he, the coach, likewise does not believe in threshold, rather that each race duration of effort has a maximal sustainable effort, and it is those loads and demands we need to train for. And so um, Dr. Milan is agreeing with this. Is there a chance that Dr. Milan is the coach of today, Padagachar? I did not look that up before this show. That'd be terrifying. What an error. I mean, it's that he's a coach of high-level cyclists. If that's the case and you've arrived at the end of this show, know that you just wasted a ton of time. At least if you're Jim. Jim's like, yeah, I knew that already. That's that's the guy I was referring to. All these thoughts, these great ideas. Um, I guess I just made, I didn't make, I, I intended to make this show for Jim's ears and had for him to uh, add to this discussion. And here I may have just made the show for everyone else though. All of those other listeners across the globe, Cedar Skier Nation. Um, it sounds like you guys are in, in agreement about that though. Um, I don't think I have anything else here that I wanted to really mention. So let's not take up more airtime. Anyway, you know, I'll, I'll add the caveat here that my musings, you might find them helpful. You might find them just that, you know, wandering around in thought because I'm definitely not someone who is keeping up to snuff in the same way in like the scientific sports training world, probably as I am in other areas, philosophy or like biblical theology. I try to like keep, and I'm not great on those either, but point being my sports take can't comes a lot from like being extremely curious as a young person, all the way through my athletic career, post-collegiately, immediately, and now I'm just kind of like living a little bit off of those threads um, with a lot more like experiential, hey, this is what I do. Uh, Sometimes it seems like this works, but I very well could be totally, you know, just... (laughs) <laughs> I don't know what the what the phrase or the idiom I'm looking for is, but I think you you understand what I'm saying is, yeah, we're we're not we don't claim to be really calculated here and comprehensive is probably the best way. Uh, but hopefully it, it, you enjoyed it a little bit. If nothing else, like I just read an article for you, right? That uh, that from a guy who's actually an expert. So that was the point of the show. Uh, and we're glad you joined us for it. We got some other stuff coming down the pipeline still because this was an additional thing. And we're, we're hoping to discuss like um, um, training, um, block training, periodization, all that stuff. We're hoping to kind of discuss that on another show too. So now I did this, didn't get to work on that prep, but you know, whatever it is, what it is. And with that, I, I guess we better say goodbye. So you've been listening to the Cedar Escape podcast on Shovel Lake Public Radio. Keep on striving. Keep on skiing.